I'm Rick O'Shea, and welcome to The Book Show. Thanks to everybody who chatted to me on Twitter during the week about the idea that Sean Bithell had brought up on last week's programme about an Irish book town, you might remember. I think I may have started a minor skirmish online between uh, Ennis, Westport, Greg Navanna and a few other spots as well. All in good humour, I hope. At least at the moment, they can't get their hands on each other. In a minute, we discuss Handsome and the Beast, Jacqueline and the Beanstalk and Cinder. Stephanie Preisner will talk to us about her waning love for the memoir and the book, movie, whiskey, album club in Limerick. They cover all the bases there. Ask questions of John Connell about the cow book. But first. Once upon a time, in the middle of winter, when the snowflakes were falling like feathers on the earth, a king sat at a window framed in black ebony and sewed. And as he sewed and gazed out to the white landscape, he pricked his finger with the needle, and three drops of blood fell on the snow outside. And because the red showed out so well against the white, he thought to himself, Oh, what wouldn't I give to have a child as white as snow, as red as blood, and as black as ebony? And his wish was granted. For not long after, a little son was born to him, with a skin as white as snow, lips and cheeks as red as blood, and hair as black as ebony. That's Roger Allam reading from Gender Swapped Fairy Tales. Joining me now, Carrie Franzman and Jonathan Plackett. Hi to you both. Hi there. Hey, how's it going? First question is, I suppose, tell me why. Why Gender Swapped Fairy Tales? So uh, when I was a kid... um, my dad used to read me and my sister bedtime stories and um, one of the things he used to do is swap some of the, the genders of the characters in the book, uh, kind of to keep it a bit more interesting for himself, but I think it, it gave me and my sister a whole bunch of characters that didn't conform to normal gender stereotypes. Um, fast forward 30 odd years, I'm now a creative technologist and I'm married to Carrie. She's a, um, a graphic novelist. We have a daughter of our own. And so I decided to create a like an algorithm that could um, could swap the gender of any text you put into it, and then it was Carrie's idea to apply it to fairy tales. Yeah, I think one of the interesting things about fairy tales is they're kind of the very first stories we're exposed to, um, and they form the kind of building bo- blocks of uh, storytelling. But they also are a hotbed for all these kind of gender archetypes and princesses and you know, powerful kings and all these sorts of things. So they could do with the gender swap, we thought. <laughs> Carrie, you chose the, the source material, though, and it's it's a book of uh, fairy tale stories by Andrew Lang. Maybe tell us a little bit about that. So um, the Lang fairy books were a huge collection, these kind of beautiful multicoloured collection of Victorian fairy stories, um, which were edited by Andrew Lang. Um, and they kind of popularised um, fairy stories for a mass audience they sanitized them a bit and put kind of moral messages in a few of them um but actually what's really interesting is we we thought they were great to to gender swap and we loved the fact that andrew lang had collaborated with his wife nora lang um and we liked that they were also a, a wife and husband team but then we read a little bit more into it and we we found an article written by researcher Andrea Day, which suggested that, in fact, maybe um, Nora Lang had actually done the brunt of the work um, on the fairy books, particularly the latter one, which we found really kind of quite interesting because she she wasn't credited so much. So we thought that was really appropriate for what we intended to do with the with the text. 
Jonathan, maybe tell me a little bit about the, the algorithm as well, because you haven't really touched an awful lot of the original text other than simply swap genders. Is that right? Yeah, so what we think is really interesting about what we've done is we've, we've firstly, we've swapped absolutely everything. Um, there's lots of um, stories that just swap uh, maybe one character. You see a lot of like tomboy princesses and that kind of thing. But what we've done is we've swapped the, the whole world. So and everything in it and everyone's expectations. So what that what that created was a whole bunch of different characters that maybe no one had thought to actually write before. But the algorithm did create because it was, you know, it, it, it didn't distinguish between main characters or anything else. It just swapped the entire world. So that's that's kind of why we thought using the algorithm was so interesting. So how exactly did that work? Did you come across any points where where everything just ground to a halt and you thought this isn't going to work? No, I didn't say I wouldn't say actually that we did have any problems where it didn't work. I think the great thing about putting a, a text through the algorithm is we get to be like the readers and we get to read it for the very first time. And it's actually a complete delight. Every story you put through it, you're you're kind of reading it in, in two ways. You're remembering the old text and um, also then reading the new one. So you're constantly flipping back and forth to what was it and what is it now? And you get really interesting things like queendoms. Um, we always joke that we, I mean, we live in the United Kingdom, but it should be the United Queendom. Um, and then you get, you know, um, in language, often the men come first. So it's brothers and sisters, and now it's sisters and brothers. Um, and the other thing which was interesting was in... Uh, women are now described by their jobs. So you have uh, the miller or the baker and her husband, um, which I found really interesting. So I think these are the things which we wouldn't, if we had rewritten them, we wouldn't have consciously been aware of. We would have just, you know, like John said, there's quite a lot of um, feminist retellings of fairy tales and they always have the tomboy princesses. But what you really don't see is the kind-hearted, sensitive princes. Um, and you don't see those tiny little changes in the language, um, which we're just kind of so used to. So I think it was really interesting. It literally shone a light on the kind of gender binaries, which we, we aren't conscious of in our society. Part of this process as well, and, and one of the things that interested me about the book, is the illustrations, you, your illustrations, Carrie, because you obviously got to swap those as well. Yeah, it was a really interesting process, swapping the illustrations, because I tried to mimic what the algorithm had done um, I looked at all of these, you know, paintings and drawings done, you know, from centuries ago <laughs> of of these fairy tales. And it was very intimidating because there are hundreds and thousands of pictures of, you know, Cinderella running down the stairs and losing her shoes. And what I tried to do when I was researching them is just swapping, doing little quick sketches where Cinderella was a man, but in exactly the same position. Um and noticing how interesting that looked, uh, the way that she was kind of sexualized as a as a woman, and then you know trying to do the same as a man, it's really really quite interesting research process. And then I it was time for me to kind of draw my own versions, and I really tried to focus on the power structure between the characters and the new power structure. So that was really interesting, um, and I also drew on the origins of the fairy stories so um each of them had different origins from different european countries mostly european i looked at textiles and clothing of that era in that time 
So each of the illustrations had a, a different colour theme and different kind of reference materials, really. Um, and they were all paint, hand painted with um, watercolours and inks. So, yeah, it was a really fun, creative process. That, that shows, I think, that they're absolutely stunning. Jonathan, so tell me, how do you pitch this then as an idea to a publisher? It's a concept, you know, it's, we, can't, so we sort of consider it part art piece, part book, part activism. It's, uh, that, that's kind of how we, how we pitched it. We were lucky in a way because we could, we could show exactly what we were going to write or rewrite. Um, so that kind of helped with the process. Um, but we were lucky we had a really, um, the editor we worked with, Louisa Joyner, um, she, she really got what we were trying to do, that it was really important not to rewrite, just to do this in a really pure way, which actually, um, it was funny, that, that threw up some quite uh, funny things as we were swapping it. Things like uh, there was a, there's a rooster in Jacqueline and the Beanstalk, well, originally a, a hen that lays the golden egg. And we, we decided to swap that too to be a rooster and still have it lay a golden egg. Um, just because, well, it was magic, right? So why can't a rooster lay an egg now? <laughs> I wish the magic made, uh, made the kings give birth as well. <laughs> they are fairy stories. You, you can kind of make whatever you want them. I, I love the idea of them being part activism uh, as well. I, I read Zoe Williams' piece in The Guardian where she said, while in life I have no problem with a female chief executive, for some reason I can't get my head around a Lady Miller. And then she talks about her dad, who did cook, but she says, the din of my interior monologue said, dads don't cook custard. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a brilliant uh, article. We're, we're really grateful for that article. It, it summed up, she kind of really took everything from it that we hoped you know, readers and reviewers would, um, talking about the unconscious biases, um, all, the, all, the, all the extra things that she noticed, that's exactly what we want to, to happen with this book, for it to be something that sparks conversation between people, between parents and children. Um, that's exactly what we're trying to do. I think one of the interesting things with this book is we're not preaching, we're not asking people to believe a certain thing. Um, we're, we're presenting something and we're really wanting people to do the analysis for themselves and we're putting the analysis in the, the hands of the readers. So we really hope it kind of is something for people who might be interested in this, the theme of gender themselves, but also maybe those people who've never considered how ingrained gender is into our language and our archetypes and the stories which we tell our children for generations. It's only just out uh, officially this week. So what sort of reaction have you been getting so far? The reaction has been absolutely fantastic. I mean, we've been bowled over by it. I think um, we're already on the third reprint. So, yeah, it's doing really well. Um, and we, we've got this great reaction from our Irish readers and bookshops there, which is absolutely brilliant. Um, so, yeah, yay Ireland. We appreciate you. <laughs> um, and... We, we've got this brilliant Guardian article and, and some more in the pipeline, but also we got a featured on bookshop.org right on the cover, which is brilliant because bookshop.org has just launched and they're promoting um, kind of uh, buying from local bookshops and giving really good percentages to uh, to bookshops, which as we head into the second lockdown here, I think is really important. We're very happy to be, <laughs> you know, promoting, promoting local businesses alongside that. Yeah, it's been a big week for them and that's that's a big story as well. But for now, anyway, Carrie Franzman and Jonathan Plackett, thanks so much for joining us on The Book Show. Thanks Thank so you. much for having us on. Gender Swapped Fairy Tales by Carrie Franzman and Jonathan Plackett is published by Faber.
When it comes to memoirs or autobiographies, the points of difference between the two can be quite blurred. Either way, they take up plenty of space on the bestseller list, and as it happens, Stephanie Preisner has had enough of them. She has reached peak memoir. Why? It's not that I've had enough of them, it's that I have now got enough of them. I bought a load of them because I started to really relate to them there in my mid-twenties. You know, reading books about other women in their mid-twenties having similar you know, identity crises and no one will, I'll never find a place in the world. I'm chronically unique. No one will ever know me. I'm dying of terminal uniqueness. So they piled up in the pile of hope, which we've referred to, Mm -hmm. and I'm getting through them. I started off really well with Educated by Tara Westover. Phenomenal book. And It Was Me All Along by Andy Mitchell. And now, and now there's just so many books that are the same about women who have had the same experiences Two of those books in that genre are written by me. I no was need. going to ask. Yes, there's no need to be 33 years old and have written two memoirs. Now, buy them if you want to. But like, <laughs> there's just, I don't have enough lived experience to be writing memoirs at this age. Like, I am 33 years old, the same age as Jesus was. And he only has one book about him. And that Granted, didn't come out until long after he died. Yeah, but I decided anyway there was enough mileage in my autobiographical history to get two books out of it so I'm just kind of sick of them because I think the ones that I'm reading are about a time that I have passed and lived through and 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 it's just a bit tedious now for most people though when they do read memoirs they read them because they are the lives of people who have done something far more exotic and far more exciting and have won Oscars or have won wars or people who've you know got a Nobel Prize but are they though is that not an autobiography See, I think the difference between a memoir and an autobiography is the difference between someone who gets murdered and someone who gets assassinated. Like someone who gets assassinated, they have an autobiography. They have a story. People will have enough information about them to want to kill them. Normal people get murdered, but everyone now feels like they have a book in them. So everyone's writing these memoirs and it's just memoirs of a day in the life of a normal person. It's also there's the pedant in me that thinks that, you know, if you have been assassinated or murdered, you're not writing your own autobiography as well. I'm not talking about, I'm saying that the type of person who writes an autobiography is the type of person who would be assassinated. The type of person who writes a memoir is the type of person who has, you know, a grocery app to get a euro off their local shop. And who wouldn't want that? Um, Tell me about the idea of, and it's one that's rattled around very frequently and it's probably nonsense that everybody thinks they have a memoir of some sort in them. Well, everybody I've met in a taxi or with a few drinks in them has a story in them that they then want me to write for some reason. Oh, I have to tell you a story. You'll love this one. You have to write this. You have to put this in something. I was stuck in an elevator once with a man who tried. And you're like, this is not a story. This has no plot. There is no exposition here. This isn't even a tweet. Not to mind a book. But everyone thinks that they have a book in them. And I I blame X Factor. I blame the sob stories of X Factor. How do you let people down gently in that situation? I smile and nod. Oh, I'm so gracious, Rick. You wouldn't even know. Like sometimes I'd even take out my phone and take a note, you know, just to just just to lubricate the social awkwardness. Where is your in fact scrolling Instagram? I mean, I, I'm probably writing down like get writing a text to my fiance being like, get me out of this situation. Having said that, there is there is an immensely healthy market for both memoir and autobiography. And particularly in the time of year we're coming up to, they tend to be the best sellers. Yes, no, because they're great. And 
for most people, you know, this is kind of the equivalent of like me getting my first period and buying 50 books about my first period. And now I'm 30 still reading about people's first periods. Like I have moved past the memoirs that I have bought. I now need to like buy memoirs of people who are living and dealing with the types of things that I'm dealing with. But I also frequently find that the tiny violins that have to be playing to read a lot of the memoirs on the shelves at the moment, I don't have... I don't have the emotional capacity for with COVID and everything I want something uplifting and I don't know what it is about Irish people but we're obsessed with sad stories and there's just an awful lot of sad memoirs out there I have enjoyed some memoirs recently and incidentally they've been by women who are slightly older and have lived a life I read interestingly I read Mary McAleese's memoir and I was surprised because when it's a president or someone who's done an awful lot of good for the world you kind of feel like you're picking up a book that's kind of like here's this terrible genocide I attended the aftermath of but hers is actually highly entertaining she's very witty and I was I was really pleasantly surprised yeah, I, I've read that as well. And I went through the process of going, I'm going to be really interested to hear about her and her work as a lawyer and becoming president and meeting the Queen. But it's actually the first parts of it where she's growing up in Belfast. They're brilliant stories. And they're usually the ones for me that I skip through in other people's autobiographies. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. And I didn't, I never, I suppose I was a bit young when she was president. Well, I wasn't really, but I wasn't tracking current affairs the way I do now. And I didn't realise she had the sense of humour and the sort of wit that she does that comes across in the book. She does have some gentle barbs for her husband from time to time. She does. It seems like a very fascinating relationship. If people are interested, it's called Here's the Story uh, by Mary McAleese. Stephanie Presner, thanks a million. We'll see you next week. Bye. It's time on the programme again to take an author and pair them with one of the country's book clubs. This week, we're going to hear from Limerick and here's Dermot Morrissey to tell us a little bit more. The Limerick book, movie, whiskey and album, BMW A Club, was founded in June 2017 by three guys whose wives would not allow them to join their book clubs. Today, the club has 17 members who meet monthly in Mother Max Hostelry in Limerick City. We have two main rules. One, bring quality choices to the table. And two, leave work talk outside the door. The meeting constitutes roundtable reviews of that month's book, movie, album and recently podcast choices and also a sampling of our whiskey choice. Quite robust and sometimes raucous discussions can take place, but without fail, always very enjoyable events. We also hold an annual gala awards night, a black tie affair where partners are invited and where Perkins, our versions of Oscars, are awarded to the best and worst choices of the year. And we also publish an annual magazine, which is a really nice record of all the events and reviews that have taken place during that year. Yeah, I have a copy of that magazine here. It's very well uh, put together. and They do pack an awful lot in this event pictures in here and a full list as well of all of their books, movies, whiskies and albums over the course of the year. They didn't like Raiders of the Lost Ark, which I find unusual or normal people which I find even stranger nonetheless. Uh, Back to business. This week it is The Cow Book by John Connell and here's Cyril Downs from the BMWA Club in Limerick to give us a sense of it. The Cow Book. One man's story of a life on an Irish farm. The trials and tribulations, successes and failures of dealing with the vagaries of the Irish climate and the unpredictability that that brings. The rebuilding of human relationships battered by emotion and frustration and the confrontations and arguments that ensue from working and living cheek by jowl, of wanting to retain control and trying to forge your own way. 
In the background, snippets of a different life. A life working in the media lived in Australia and Canada. Of love lost and love blossoming. A life left behind for a year on an Irish farm. A year in which to heal and rebuild himself. A year to immerse himself in the cycles of nature in the requirements of cattle. And joining me now is the author of The Cow Book, John Connell. John, uh, does that sound like a fair assessment of your book? It does, Rick. Uh, it's 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 lovely to hear that. And what a great name, BMWA. Uh, it sounds like a fab club. Um, yeah, I think they really um, got a hold of it. You know, it's... Um, it was a special book to write and um, I suppose it just resonated with people and it's just so great to have um, a book club um, pick it. Uh, so I'm really delighted uh, to, to be on the show talking about it. I also think Cyril has a wonderful voice. I think he should be narrating audiobooks himself. Uh, question one is the first one from the BMWA Club in Limerick and this one is from Ger Hart. In the cow book, you look at the historical interactions between men and cows as well as your own time spent on the family farm. Was it always the plan to have two separate themes in the book? Yes, um, you know, that's a great question. It, 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 it actually happened very naturally. Uh, I was writing the book uh, in Spain and um, I was, I suppose, I'd been interested in the idea of the history of the cow, but in a way, the history came in to, in a way, to break up the story, the 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 ongoing story on the farm, and uh, when I wrote it, uh, I I started to realise that there was so much interesting stuff in the history of the cow, and really, it was an alternative history of humanity. Uh, so it it happened by accident, and then I just absolutely loved it, and it just worked its way through the whole book. Um, so I was really delighted when I discovered it, and you know, talking about like ancient Egypt, the first pyramids were built of the bulls, right the way up to the cloning of cattle. So uh, yeah, it was it was a happy accident. The second question comes from Seamus Byrne. In your book, you outline the historical importance of the cow in Irish rural life. In the modern green narrative, the cow is now considered a threat. Can you give me your opinion on this shift in status? Yes, look, another good question again from the BMWA club. I think the cow is an important part of uh, not only the cultural makeup of this country, but the economic makeup of this country. Um, We are very good farmers in this country we're working uh, we're working with environmental concerns in mind uh, and i think that you know there are other countries such as brazil where they're cutting down the rainforest to make way for beef farms so we are seen to be um we're seen to be very productive and also very environmentally conscious uh, of course uh, climate change is a big factor it's also something i talk about in the book um, we have to be aware of the changing role of the cow. But I do think that the cow will always have a place in our mind and in our economy. Uh, the role may change. Um, certain certain farmers may have to get into other areas of agriculture, but I think the cow is, uh, is here to stay. But we will do it with the environment in mind. And our last question is from Tony O'Neill. Hi, John. Tony here. In Limerick, we're very proud of our local riders, guys like Don Ryan, Dan Mooney, Kevin Barry. I'm interested to know what modern Irish riders you admire. 
Yeah, uh, Tony, it's great to hear from you. Um, you know, uh, there's so many fabulous writers uh, who are out there and poets as well. Um, we all are aware of the Sally Rooney's and um, and people like that. But I suppose I wanted to talk about uh, Stephen Sexton, uh, who's a poet from Northern Ireland. Uh, he teaches up in the um, uh, in Queens in the Seamus Heaney Centre. Uh, there, Stephen is an absolutely gifted poet who has wrote an amazing book about of poetry about uh, the passing of his mother in relation to Super Mario. Um, Stephen is someone I think who uh, we are all going to be talking about in years to come. Uh, I also, uh, I suppose, would count um, Colin Barrett as a really gifted writer. Uh, Colin, uh, of course, wrote Young Skins and there was a recent movie made of one of the short stories. Uh, Colin is someone I think who who uh, he has a new book coming out and I think we're all going to be talking about it and then finally uh, Claire Keegan is a writer who I really admire Claire wrote Walk the Blue Fields uh, she also wrote Foster and um, I believe she has a new book coming out in the next year or so uh, that will all depend I suppose with Covid but Claire is a, is a master of the short story form and uh, someone that I think deserves uh, even more attention and uh, more name recognition. Just before we finish, John, and not that I want to bring that C word into the conversation, the running book is is just out. Strangely, it has been a very opportune time for it to come out. Yeah, <laughs> I suppose so. Um, it's, uh, I suppose, um, you know, we are all living um, uh, these five kilometre radius lives and people have discovered movement and running and walking uh, now more than ever before and um, I suppose the running book is a celebration of discovering what's in your backyard it's a book about um, a run through North Longford and an examination of the past and the present and the nature of being alive and what movement can do for you to make you happy and um, I suppose it's something that we're all thinking about now um, in relation to COVID we all have to try and keep ourselves happy and keep ourselves moving so uh, it was strangely prescient. John Connell it's always a pleasure thanks a million for talking to us on the book show. Thanks Rick and delighted to be on. Both The Cowbook and John's latest The Running Book are published by Picador. Thanks to John Connell for his time and thanks also to the Book Movie Whiskey Album Club in Limerick City for the questions. If you'd like to volunteer your book group to take part on a future programme, you can drop us a line to bookshow at rte.ie. And that's it for this week's book show on RTE Radio 1. The podcast is available wherever you find yours. And you can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at BookshowRTE. On Shelf Analysis this week, I'll be talking to Neil Gaiman. He's live this coming Wednesday at 8 o'clock on the Shelf Analysis YouTube channel, or you can watch later on on RTE Culture. I'll talk to you again next week. As ever, don't forget to check with your local bookshop for any of the books featured in this week's programme.